Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 205 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I have four new step-siblings. Oh, that's nice. Nice work. Yeah, my mama did a marry and yeah, I've inherited some extra family. So now it's sprawling. If anything, there's too many of us. <laughs> How was the wedding? Was it nice? It was gorgeous. It was so love-filled and Anne didn't stop laughing. She gets pissed immediately. So she was, she kept sinking into the grass and nearly falling over. It was exactly what you want from a two OAPs getting hitched. <laughs> there was Aww. an element of jeopardy the whole way through. <laughs> Congratulations, Anne and Brian. That's lovely. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I saw Patty Smith last night, didn't I? No, you didn't. <laughs> yes, I did. The High Priestess of Punk. Was she incredible? Oh, she was amazing. Yeah, yeah she was amazing. Her voice is still really, really great. Isn't it? The only thing is, she can still hear all the notes. The only thing is, she, I mean, she's the same age as my mum. And she gets a bit out of puff, so she can't do a lot of the old punky stuff because it's a bit jumpy around shouting. So, yeah, there was a bit more of the slow stuff. Between Songs was delightfully shambolic, like crazy shambolic stories that she just kept saying. I um Now, why am I telling this story? Why did I start this story? And uh, <laughs> her son is in her band, and I just thought, I, I feel an intense empathy with him right now. His mother's just like everybody else's mother. They start a story and then they forget why they were telling it. <laughs> was it quite a triggering experience, Hannah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm Jen Offord and my youth is officially over. I've moved down the road to Leighton for an extra bedroom. I, I don't understand any of that, Jen. And not least because your youth was officially over a long time ago. Oh, <laughs> I hate to break it to you. Rude. But... Burn. Uh, I've left London's fashionable Dalston to move to London's less fashionable Leighton. Oh, are you being a snob? No, I'm not being a snob. I'm talking about where the young hip people go and where the young hip people don't go. Oh, you don't know, though. I mean, Leighton's just down the road from me because I'm in Walthamstow and there's some mm. young hip people here. I mean, obviously, oh, I yeah, don't talk to them, but yeah. Well, <laughs> Walthamstow's been coming up for a while, babe. You've got a really posh, actually, so do I, very nearby, a very posh spa, as in like not like a spa like where you get a facial, like a spa where you buy like your bread and milk from. Yeah, we do in the village. Eat yeah. 17. Eat 17, yeah. Mm. I've been there. I don't buy anything. I just wander around going, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the hood and also middle-aged, Jen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up, Sabrina Pace Humphreys chats with me about the toughest foot race on earth. And they are really not kidding with that description and how ultra running and rural racism led her to activism, founding the Black Trail Runners and writing her memoir, Black Sheep. I chat to Shalina Jan Mohammed, author of the new book Beautiful, about why we need to mix things up when it comes to understanding beauty and damning the man with a simple compliment. And in this week's Rated or Dated, be careful what you wish for <laughs> as we watch 1987's Ode to Feminism? Question mark, the Witches of Eastwick. But first, booze, bunting, and bell ends. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. £400 for everyone. Makes a girl wish she could afford to own enough houses to really cash in on this much-needed money. Have you seen that, Jen? 
I've seen that we're getting four hundred pounds, but I think this might—I think it might be a bit more nuanced than perhaps I had. So maybe you could explain to me. Everyone who pays a bill is getting four hundred pounds, right? Which means that if you have a second home somewhere mm-hmm. or a third home somewhere, you get it on that property as well. Cool, because you clearly—if you have two homes—you need clearly, it. Clearly, you need that four hundred pounds. Great. I wonder. I don't know. As someone who currently has no hot water or heating, if £400 gets paid into my account at this rate, British Gas is going to end up owing me money. Well, fingers crossed. Anyway, Hannah, should we talk about Partygate for a minute? I know you're going to talk about that in a minute. I'm guessing you're still a bit pissed off with the government about that whole Partygate situation. Me too. And that is putting it mildly. There must be literally millions of people up and down the land who feel the same. And it certainly presents a dilemma for our Prime Minister Boris Johnson. If only there were a way to distract us that didn't actually involve making any useful policy decisions, eh? Well, quite. Okay, so how about a windfall tax, as you've just chatted about, Hannah, on energy companies, which was announced more than two months after the spring statement, the point at which they were supposed to have some ideas on how we might manage our energy bills tripling this year. Nope, people are still criticising him. So what else, I wonder, can he do? It's a tough one. It is difficult, but I think I, think I might have spotted... Some I've spotted an opportunity here. The Queen, bunting, national pride. People like all of these things, don't they? Ah, yes, the empire. People love talking about that. And how good the war was. They love that, don't they? They do, the people. (laughs) What if the government decided to fuck with everyone under the age of 70 by bringing back imperial measurements? I couldn't give two farthings, whatever they are, for that. I don't know what a farthing is. I don't know when a farthing was used. I don't know. I've literally got... I've got nothing Olden for you. Days, Jen. Olden, Olden days, Jen. Olden days. So the government have just announced a post-Brexit review of the use of metric measurements by traders, which they must currently use when selling packaged or loose goods in line with other EU countries. But since we're not in the EU anymore... I don't know if anyone's mentioned that. And we've got our blue passports back again. The reintroduction of imperial measurements is surely the next logical step in our disentanglement from those unit-loving pricks, right? Quite. Let's be honest, it's got Reese Mogg's clammy fingerprints all over it. But it's also got, you'll be delighted to learn, Marc Francois's backing. Incidentally, uh, <laughs> I know. I mean, that's substantial. <laughs> yeah. He would also like to see us relax our data protection laws now that we're free of Europe's cursed shackles. Next up, we're bringing back Jim Davidson, child chimney sweeps and dysentery. Before you start brushing up on your shillings and pence, don't worry, this is just a review. It's been planned since September, but cynically timed to open alongside the Jubilee weekend and a period of intense and widespread anger at the government from the people that voted them into power. Anyway, I'm off on my um, on my penny farthing to buy some goose fat to keep me warm this winter. Shall I pick you some up, Hannah? Sorry, I don't have any tickets in my ration book. <laughs> yeah. Am I still furious about Partygate, Jen? Not a rhetorical question, obviously, because you did ask it earlier. Although also a rhetorical question, because you fully know that the answer is yes. 
Now, I'm not going to rehash why, because, you know, everyone has done that. But I did want to bring up one topic that's not been so widely discussed, and that is the drinking culture at number 10, which Sue Gray was pretty critical of, but everybody else has seemed to either skip over or defend. Because, well, let me make an analogy for you. An alcoholic told me once that when she says to people that she doesn't drink anymore, their first reaction tells her everything she needs to know about their drinking habits. Sure, most of us find the idea of number 10 staff getting shit-faced, throwing up, spilling wine up the walls, fighting with each other and being abusive to security and cleaning staff despicable. But it was amazing how many people defended number 10's rights to pretty regular piss-ups because they had been working hard. Sure, it's offensive to everyone else who was also working hard, but it's also a prime example of alcohol's role in the UK as both reward and consolation. A role that meant problem drinking shot up in lockdown and remains worryingly high something the government seems in no rush to tackle. Just another health time bomb waiting to go off. Don't worry yourself about it. <laughs> in The Spectator, Rory Sutherland asked, quote, why is everyone so shocked that people drink at work? The answer, of course, is that not everybody works in the media or in advertising or in whatever else Sutherland does with his time. Come on, he says, and this is a direct quote, if some nurses or doctors got a bit sloshed together after work without adding to the network of people they were exposed to. Good luck to them. The word if is doing a lot of heavy <laughs> lifting in that sentence. I'm wondering if Sutherland's ever finished work genuinely exhausted. Mm. I'm also wondering how many NHS staff could afford to live near the hospital they work in mm -hmm. or leave their car at work and get a taxi home. Having a drink after work is a top-tier contributor of drink driving, but forgive me for being so po-faced. What time does cocktail hour start today, Jen? <laughs> One more thing. A few weeks ago, when Sadiq Khan launched a commission into the legality of cannabis in the UK, many Tories made hay with the photos of the London mayor surrounded by lovely, lovely weed plants. Home Secretary Priti Patel tweeted the following... Sadiq Khan's time would be better spent focusing on knife and drug crime in London. The mayor has no powers to legalise drugs. They ruin communities, tear families apart and destroy lives. So yeah, a few things to say about that. Firstly, one of the reasons drugs ruin lives is that they can lead to a criminal conviction. Arguably, if cannabis were legal, it would destroy fewer lives. Inarguably, stopping police in cannabis would free up the police to focus on more knife crime. And finally, you know what else ruins communities, tears families apart and destroys lives? I'll tell you at the next drink till you leave a puddle of sick for the cleaner Friday. <laughs> oh man, it's... Pissed. I don't know, it's very complicated, isn't it? I don't like it's not I don't think it's unusual for people to go for a drink after work. Like it's not it certainly wasn't unusual for people to go for a drink after work when I was a civil servant, but I think the key thing is it was after work, it was after you'd finished your job, mm. you left the office and you went somewhere else. You weren't like in a culture where, you know, people didn't get shit faced at work. And I and I think also I can see something in the argument of like people needing to let off a bit of steam because it was a very stressful time or whatever, but I can't like I, I would 
you know, like many other people, find it quite shocking that people in the highest public office in the country were like puking up the walls. They were so shit faced mm-hmm. at work. Like that's yeah. quite concerning, I think, just from a like, how the fuck is this shit being run? Yeah, and also, I have no problem with people getting drunk at all. Mm. You know, I've been drunk myself, if you can believe it, Jen. No. But part of the point of going for a drink after work is that you've finished work. Yes. It's that bit about transitioning from leaving work to yeah. going home. And they were there still drinking at work, some of them, until two, three, four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And I just think that's... That blurs the line between work and piss up that makes me uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think your point about the difference between booze and drugs is obviously a very valid one, for sure. Thanks, Jen. So, good news time, is it? Well, as you know, we all get an extra two days off this week to celebrate what the kids are calling and i actually witnessed this at the weekend the platy jobs okay if you work in a shop or a hospital or a hotel or one of those thousands of jobs that don't stop for enforced patriotism you won't be getting those specific days off and until this very job i have now i was always one of those people so i just wanted to say hello For the rest of you lucky people, which now includes us, Jen, Mm -hmm. some of whom I'm sure will end up having to do a whole week's work in three days to ensure that they get that time off. Enjoy your street party or binging Stranger Things or whatever it is that you're doing. If you're one of those people who finds it difficult to switch off and can't stop themselves looking at their emails while they're away, you may be interested in a ludicrous new service (laughs) offered by the Iceland tourism team in which you can get a horse to reply to your emails when you are out of the office. Because, of course, (laughs) called Outhorse Your Email, presumably because I'm nay here, doesn't quite (laughs) sell it. Any emails you receive while on holiday will get a reply from a horse walking on an oversized skateboard. (laughs) And will make as much sense as you'd imagine a horse walking on a keyboard can make. So, yeah, this is daft as fuck, but it makes an interesting and important point, and that is that a recent survey showed 41% of us, and I am very much one of those people, reply to emails while on holiday. I mean, I've got cats to walk all over my keyboard and reply to emails, but if you don't, maybe sign yourself up to outhorse your email and actually give yourself some time off. That is lovely stuff. I enjoy that very much. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of photographs. If you Google out horse your email, there's a lot of, ho- of photographs of horses walking on these massive keypads. Is it like that scene in Big where they dance in... Uh... <laughs> yeah, sort of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I'll be Googling later. Right. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask, is it misogynistic? I hadn't noticed, while we shrug and concede that Richard Curtis is, after all, responsible for Love Actually, and The Guardian does, after all, employ Owen Jones. Let's talk about an article which someone, a woman, actually wrote, and a newspaper, The Guardian, actually published this weekend. Headline, Books by Women That Every Man Should Read, chosen by Ian McEwan, Salman Rushdie, Richard Curtis and more. 
Oh, tell me more, Jen. Well, I love Ian McEwan, right? He might be a man, but he's ever so good with words. So I was pissed before I even got to the first line of this article, but it did get worse. The filmmaker Richard Curtis realised during the first lockdown that he would at least have time to immerse himself in books, more specifically, books by women, to compensate for 63 years of male bias, he explains. (laughs) It's been an amazing two years. Lucky him. (laughs) The glory of Anne Tyler, Anne Patchett, Ali Smith, Zadie Smith, Daphne du Maurier, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and so many others. The fact that Richard Curtis took two years of global pandemic as a welcome opportunity to do some reading tells me everything I need to know about Richard Curtis. The fact that Curtis actually wanted to commit to publication, that it came as a surprise to him that women aren't universally shit writers, (laughs) tells me even more. Sounding like he's literally been scripted by Will Hislop as his character feminist fuckboy, Curtis goes on. I've given away more copies of Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout than you can imagine, he says. I spend my whole time romping through bookshops saying, why haven't you got more Anne Tyler novels on your shelves? I've had a genuine epiphany in terms of the novels that I read. (laughs) That was more puking, by the way. You froze while you were doing it, Jen, which was kind of terrifying. You did it really, really slowly because it was horrible. (laughs) There's a point to this article, allegedly, and that is that men don't read books by women. Women, on average, read books written by men and women 50-50, the article says, whereas for men, the ratio is more like 80-20. Hang on, men think women are less intelligent and worthy than them. Hold the front fucking page, The Guardian. This is huge news. Let's ask a bunch of extremely privileged men who've benefited from centuries of structural oppression about why they think that is and somehow present it as them being enormously progressive. Mm -hmm. I don't like the way the term woke has been adopted by the GB News Brigade, right? I don't think it should be an insulting concept that a person is not a bigot, which is, you know, what it originally meant. But I'm going to use it now too. Because this drivel is the perfect example of why people are snotty about the woke brigade. Because fucking hell, man, this was just poorly conceived from start to finish, wasn't it? Imagine having such little self-awareness that anyone involved in this article thought it was a good idea. Imagine... Being someone who's made a living from writing, which Richard Curtis has, mm-hmm. and admitting that you've never read Daphne du Maurier and that you've never read White Teeth. I mean, it's a bit late now. Anne Tyler isn't in more bookshops because where were you when Anne Tyler was mostly still writing books, Richard Curtis? Yeah, you were writing masturbatory shit like The Boat That Rocked. But anyway... <laughs> Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Sabrina Pace Humphreys, award-winning businesswoman, ultra-runner, Runner's World cover star, activist and author. Sabrina, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you doing? I'm okay. I've had a bit of a morning with a child, but I'm all the better for being here and talking to you. So, yeah, life never fails to throw you curveballs 
that <laughs> test every ounce of your being and the expertise that you believe you have. But hey, we step on is what I say. That's my mantra. We step on. I feel, Sabrina, you've just sort of pissed all over my intro because we are going to talk about your book, <gasps> Black Sheep, which is about all of the things you've just mentioned. But actually, first of all, I would like you to tell us about the brilliant hell that is the Marathon de Sable aka the toughest foot race on earth why would anyone <laughs> enter a race with the subtitle as it being the toughest foot race on earth so for those that don't know the marathon des sables or the marathon de sable as the french call it is a 250 kilometer multi-day ultra marathon that takes place in the sahara desert Mm -hmm. I, I was early recovery looking for some kind of event that didn't involve lots of alcohol to say you know what I made it to 40 years on this earth mm -hmm. my life begins now and the kind of woman that I am my childhood those developmental years I guess molded me to be is that I needed I needed a challenge and that challenge was taking part in the toughest foot race on earth. The story of me finding out about it was that I was watching on television one night, flicking through Saturday night, came across a documentary, James Cracknell, the Olympian, <laughs> being sick and being hooked up to an IV line in a tent in the desert. And me being me was like, what's all that about then? And it was him taking part in the Marathon de Sable. So, yeah, look it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm a runner, she says. I'm feeling the least like a runner I've ever been when I'm talking yeah. to you. But, you know, the biggest distance I've trained for is a half marathon. But I do it for mental health headspace, right? And I know that's a very similar vibe to you. But ultra running, mate, um, could you tell me a little bit about how ultra running became your saviour and your light? You know, everything's relative and that's what I want to say. And that's a real thing I want to get across is that no matter what distance you run, if it gives you, as you say, I started running because I was severely postnatally depressed. I've always suffered with high anxiety and episodes of depression. That is me. That's my makeup. I accept that. And to accept it, has made that journey, that lived experience so much easier, actually. I'm not ashamed of that being part of me anymore. But I came to running because my GP, when I was so dark with postnatal depression, you know, real thoughts about my own life and, and my worth in this world, she was the one that said to me, Sabrina, why don't you try jogging? Why don't you try, as well as therapy, as well as medication, all of those routes we're going to go down, I want you to do something for yourself that takes you away from the, the, the house. Try jogging. And I, I almost laughed at her. And even I, I was like, <laughs> I am not a runner. I am not a runner. You know, the outdoors was a, a place of fear for me growing up. You know, I grew up in a very white rural market town in the UK where I was the only black person, the only person of colour in my street, in my town, in my school. I did not grow up in a multi-diverse community. So therefore, 
I always stayed away from outdoor spaces because they they were unsafe spaces for me. They were places I would be called out. I would be mentally abused. At times I would be physically hurt. It, they weren't safe. Mm -hmm. So doing any kind of activity that I was on display was never something that I wanted to do. So I was a gym bunny. I did not like running. And I say that because I will talk about ultramarathons, but whatever mileage you do is that's the right mileage for you so an ultramarathon is classified as any distance even if it's 0.1 of a k over 26.2 miles right. you accidentally when listen to this accidentally thought i'll go and run 26.2 miles and you've gone over by even 0.1 of a k you're an ultramarathon runner right <laughs> that that's the distinction I find, and I found first run when I shuffled a minute and I walked a minute and I thought, oh my God, I was five stone overweight, a new mum, running an award-winning business. I, I, I was like, what the hell am I doing here? From that first run, because of that, you know that feeling we get? Like oh, the run when is high. even, so, oh my God, being in that, like they call it like the zone, even in that first run, for that whole, I think it took me to do a mile. It took me about, I want to say like 30, 40 minutes because there was a rest. There was lots of rests. But in that time that I'd been doing that, I didn't have the thoughts of like, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm a shit mum. I'm a shit wife. I'm drinking too much. I don't want to be in my business anymore, but I don't know how to get out of it. I feel as though I'm, I'm, trapped all I could focus on was breathing yep keeping myself upright not being sick <laughs> and like how am I going to move my body forward to get myself home? and really even now I'm an ultra marathon runner so I run for very long distances it's really so I can get so much more of that time that I'm like okay I can get into that runner's zone but what I found with the running, rather than just, and running long distance, rather than just clearing my head and escaping, now what happens is I have the most amazing thought processes. So these problems I'm having in life, the longer I run, the more I can really start in my own head to break down why is it that I think that about that thing? Mm -hmm. Or why is it? And I've got the time because I'm <laughs> running such a long distance to really keep asking, but why? But why do I think that way? Or why isn't that working the well? Be well, maybe it's because that you're doing that or I have the time to break it down. So I kind of just am tending to run longer because actually in terms of figuring out some of the problems and the issues I have, gives me the space to do that that I just don't get in my normal juggling the kids and the grandkids and the husband and the jobs and the PT and the activism my running long distance gives me the time to do that I have the best ideas when I'm running long distances I have the best solutions as well yeah that's why I do it I mean, you've made it sound utterly joyous, but it's still a no from me, but I am very pleased for you. <laughs> so many events and experiences in your life brought you to the toughest foot race on earth in 2018. 
and you chart them all in Black Sheep, which is your book, which at its heart is an against all odds celebration of your achievements. Achievements that have defied expectations and judgments of you, and in your own words, judgments of you not just as a black person, but as a girl that people said would never amount to much. So you've had to revisit a lot of really tough times, but joyfully also a lot of triumphs. On balance, how hard was Black Sheep to write? Oh my goodness. You know, I'm going to be really honest with you. It was fucking horrendous. (laughs) (laughs) Like, let's get it out there at the moment. I, and you'll read it in the book, anyone that reads the book, I absolutely, hand on heart, no word of a lie, never ever believed I would write a book. Mm -hmm. Because my writing my ability to communicate via the written word from the moment I entered the professional world as a single mother of two was used as a tool. My lack of ability to write was used as a tool to put me back in my box, to not give me the promotions that I deserved, to not give me the money in my career that I deserved because from the very first job my employer had said to my tutor my preschooler can write better than her her writing is abominable it was if that was passed like a baton to every employer so every interview I would get get to they would ask for references and in every reference that I would be given it would be she's she's great at this she's great at this but her writing's not great so I went into the world of public relations in which a big part of my job was to write press releases, mm. was to write articles, was to email journalists. And I would have so much imposter syndrome, so much fear and anxiety around them thinking I was shit. So writing Black Sheep, like when my friend was like, I really believe that you should start to document. And, you know, this came very much from the rise in Black Lives Matter from the murder of George Floyd, that Pandora's box inside myself that I kept so tightly shut mm. because of fear of being t- that I was lying about my experience because I, I live in a majority white town and people within this town, they do not want to believe that their town has this racist underbelly in the sense of not hearing the experience of black people that live here, not wanting to believe that it's real. So therefore saying, no, 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 no that's not what happens here so therefore you must be lying about your experience because that's not what happens here but they're looking at it through their lens their white lens Mm. that was fundamentally why a friend of mine who's an author was like sab like you should if you can just start just to, to write down some of your experiences because I think I had this conversation with her like there was there's nothing out there for people like me there's no memoir there wasn't at that time that was about the experience of being a mixed race racialized as black woman man living in a rural market town in the UK and how our experiences that trauma impacts upon every element of our life throughout our life so it was really traumatic writing it because I knew I had to go back to being that little girl I knew in order to really speak my truth and in order to have that connection with a reader, if anyone wanted to read this book, I had to take myself back there. I had to be that little girl at school at the fate. I had to relive that 
in order to convey what that was like. I had to be the girl on the bus, the teenager who was sent to the secondary school with none of the friends that she had made at primary school. And again, being the only black person there surrounded by kids who can be really cruel, really, really cruel. I felt as though I, if I was going to do one book in my life and this was going to be the book, I had to open that Pandora's box. I had to step into it, walk that path with her again. And it was immensely traumatizing. Healing too, absolutely Mm -hmm. healing too. But it was a really difficult eight months in writing that book. And it took me to some really, you know, I went had some, you know, depressive episodes again, real anxiety around, oh my God, I'm really putting myself out there. You know, so the first couple of chapters of the book are very much about my experiences of being that, you know, being that girl, being that teenager, living in a town, you know, I talk about the, you know, don't touch my hair, you know, how mm. living in a town where you cannot see anyone to identify with and how actually people within that town, when the only cultural representation that they have, when a 14 year old girl goes into their salon with her pocket money that she saved, and and wants a hairstyle that will maybe make her fit in and the only cultural reference that you have because you have no black friends you have no black people in the community is Will Smith the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and you cut her hair in that way it's not a look that I think many 14 year old girls are going for (laughs) oh my god it was and I try and again recount that in the book the, the absolute abject terror of seeing this happen to you but not having an ounce of self-esteem or confidence to stop that happening mm. because the background you come from what you've been taught by your mother is we respect adults we say please and thank you you know we, we do not use our voices in a way that makes other people feel uncomfortable uh-huh. Yeah. I was dealing with so many different things in my head, but really all I wanted to do was shout, stop there. The bullies are going to absolutely crucify me more than they ever did before. That was hard embodying her again because she was just, she was so lost and lacking identity until the hopeful bit about that story is Fiona. finding Fiona, <laughs> Fiona. You know, Fiona, who was the first black woman that that saw me, that absolutely peered into my soul and like she said, I see you. You know, at that time I would identify as half caste because my, my mother would call me half caste because she didn't know any better. We didn't know. And, and to be told like by a, a black, like you're not half. I, I always felt, I, I wasn't white because I was told I wasn't white. You know, I, I look black. My sister presents as white. So I had no identification even with my own sister because mm. she was never, she never experienced that racism because people saw her, they saw a white girl. People saw me, they saw a black girl. And to finally feel seen and to be embraced within a culture that I so desperately wanted to feel seen in because the white people they didn't they didn't see me as as one of them of course my mother I was her daughter but of course she you know she she knew what was happening but again I had to protect her she had her own mental health issues so I felt 
there was no one for me to talk to until the owner until and that was such a pivotal moment in my teenagedom that changed so much of the game for me in terms of just starting to build a bit of self-esteem and I will forever be indebted to that woman I hope I meet her again one day Oh, it's such a joyous moment in the book. But it's also, it's a very Sabrina Pace Humphreys theme, right? So there's awful adversity that is beyond your control. And then you overcome it and you're triumphant. And I think that is a theme that has run throughout your life. And while I absolutely like tip my hat to how fucking exhausted you must be a lot of the time, (laughs) the fact that you make gold out of shit, for want of a better (laughs) phrase has become the thing you do. So a couple of years after the Marathon de Sable, excuse my French accent, a near-death experience (laughs) absolutely solidified that you were going to be an activist, I think. Would you mind telling us a bit about that and about how it led then to you founding the excellent Black Trail Runners? So I'm a trail runner, everyone. I love nothing better than to run on anything that's not road. So whether it's a canal towpath or whether it's a mountain, nature for me and my mental health is that's where I am. That's my medicine and I need it every day. So that took me to mountains. So a a couple of friends, they classified themselves as mountain runners. I was like, what is all this about? It led me to um, a race um, in a part of the world that I'd never been to, which is the kind of French-Italian border, kind of Chamonix kind of area. And I was participating in a mountain race there. And I fell, slipped off the side of a very narrow snow field, like a path through a mountain Mm -hmm. pass and I thought I was going to die I was hanging on to the side if you can imagine hanging on to the side of snow and and it being an all vertical drop down and you know at that time my first grandchild had been born I had everything to live for the golden rule in running and in trail running is that if you see a runner down you stop and you help of course you stop you don't think about your time you don't think you help because it's a fellow comrade you know no matter what color no matter what gender you stop and help I was losing my grip and if I would have fallen I would have if not died seriously been injured I was screaming on the side of this snowfield please help me please various white male runners ignored me as if I wasn't there at all they could see I was absolutely fighting for my life not to fall off there and they ignored me they ran past five of the fuckers as well five of them yeah yeah and I really really thought I was gonna die and thank the lord an Italian I say he's Italian but not English darker skinned man suddenly appeared and saved my life is is how I see it and in that process when I got finally back up onto the path and I got to the side where there wasn't snow thanked him and and he called them you know you know bastards because they he knew they should have stopped he could see what was happening and you know and I asked myself like why didn't they help me why and 
only and the overriding thing again comes from my lived experience of of being othered of of being told like you're not good enough you know you don't belong here was I don't look like maybe any of their loved ones if I had been white and blonde would a hand have been offered to me and in my lived experience yes it would have and it really made me question my safety my own safety and why when I do these trail and mountain races why why are then why am I looking around and I'm seeing no black people I'm seeing no women especially women you know if you you think of the lack Mm -hmm. of black people and then you intersect that with the lack of female participants like we are we are scarce out there and it just made me that fear that I felt that this isn't a place for me was that that was replaced by like anger anger in the sense that I have to finish this race in order to a tell the race organizers what had happened and hope at that time that they might do something about it they didn't by the way they didn't and b eventually even though I was dealing with the trauma every time I would go out of am I going to fall and if I fall is anyone going to want to help me that led me the next year to ask the question are there other people that look like me that enjoy the sport of trail running and oh my god I found just six other black people who themselves were asking that question what had happened again to us to make us ask the question was a black man called Amud Arbery had been murdered in America while out running he was out running and he was murdered he was shot and it caused the community the global community of people of color that run to uh, again say are we not safe just running are we not safe just running too and it led me to create and co-found black trail runners and our mission it's very simple it's to encourage more black people to the beautiful activity of trail running but hey and this is really important to say you don't need to be black to be a member if you want to help to diversify because you want to look around at an event or in the outdoors and see more people of color you could be a member of black trail runners too look sabrina you are mega passionate and it is oh it's contagious which isn't a word i use lightly in the time of covid but you've had (laughs) This incredibly successful career running your own PR business for decades. And you're now basically a PR for black representation, which is so, so important. Black Sheep is published by Quercus and will be available in all good bookshops from June the 9th. Where can people follow you and find out what you're up to and get involved with what you're doing, Sabrina? My handle on Instagram is Sab Runs Miles. She bloody does. Sab Runs Miles. <laughs> or as someone said the other day... It- they thought it was sab run smiles i do i i smile a lot when i run (laughs) or at black trail runners instagram account and from there you can come to our website blacktrailrunners.run become a member join facebook group see everything that we're getting up to sabrina it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you thank you so much for joining me (laughs) thank you so much for having me
I am joined by Shalina Jan Mohammed, author of the new book, Be Beautiful, who I've been talking to for about 10 minutes already, and she's great. So, Shalina, thank you very much Hello. for joining me. I would like to ask you, first of all, about the book. Can you tell me a little bit about it and what inspired it? It's a book for girls aged eight plus, and it explores ideas of what does it mean to be beautiful. And it was inspired by a conversation I had with my older daughter, who was around five at that time. And I did that thing that mums aren't supposed to do. I was looking in the mirror and I'm not particularly body conscious, but I think I was trying on a dress that I'd had from before my that my younger daughter had been born. And I kind of looked at myself and said, oh, I'm not beautiful and I made some comments which I won't repeat on a podcast and uh, and she sort of stared at me very fiercely and she said mummy you are beautiful why do you keep saying that about yourself and I had this mixture of emotions my heart burst with pride that all my feminist principles that I had embedded into her were starting to come to fruition and I was being taught feminism 101 by my five-year-old But I also started to worry about what was going to happen in the future when she was more widely exposed to other people and to other opinions. And that's really where the idea about talking about beauty to girls came from. I have my own activist background, so I've spent, you know, more than a decade before she came along talking about Muslim women and their representation. And in particular, what does it mean to be a woman? And the fact that Muslim women don't typically have permission to be a woman like everybody else and their looks are part of that. And then I'd moved into the advertising industry as an outsider, not having worked in advertising before. And I started to see the power that the culture and storytelling has about ideas of beauty and how they get to be shaped. And so I thought, well, why don't I write a book about what it means to be beautiful and show girls from behind the scenes, actually secretly show women too, because I'd spent a lifetime thinking about this. And actually, I think a lot of us women don't think about how ideas are constructed and not fixed. Why don't we have a look at where ideas come from, how they're shaped? And so I started researching history and discovered really interesting things like in the Stone Age, if you were a big, roundy, voluptuous woman, that was the best kind of woman to be. And if you lived at the time of Queen Elizabeth, you needed to have red hair and rotten teeth to be considered beautiful. Uh, until then, women with red hair were considered a villain. Witches. which Exactly. Mm. And so it was like, well, there's an interplay of power and prestige and wealth in women's ideas of beauty. And I was really fascinated by the period of suffragettes and flappers and how the worst insult you could throw at a woman who was trying to assert her rights was that she was ugly which seemed to really reinforce the idea that the only way to be a good woman was a beautiful woman. And actually the the feminist movement that arose was about saying how we look and how we present ourselves is itself part of our ownership of who we are. And we don't need to be here just to look according to somebody else's idea of beauty. And I think that's where, where the book really flourished. It was the idea that beauty ideals reflect what a woman is supposed to be, what a good woman is supposed to be. And if we can dismantle that, then we can enjoy everybody being really beautiful because actually there's something in everybody and and we as women just need to decide for ourselves. And that was the message that I wanted to give to girls. So it's an exploration of beauty. It's beauty as a serious and worthy subject but it's also sneaking in the idea of being you as a woman and deciding for yourself. What struck me, having gone through my own experience, seeing my girls thinking about 
women's representation and identity is that if we look at women and beauty in the round, society always makes all women feel like they're not good enough and that there is a problem. And some women get elevated and put on a pedestal as this is what a woman is supposed to look like. And then it becomes really competitive and everybody else is supposed to try and look like that. But even the women on the pedestal don't even really look like that. And so I talk in the book about how one of the most activist things you can do is to look in the mirror and be happy with yourself because women are tipped into a state of constant anxiety and never quite feeling good enough and that and our looks are part of that because as the girls when I researched this book themselves have said in various studies you know a third of girls between seven and ten say that their appearance is their most important attribute and you know two-thirds of them in that age group are saying that they feel like they're not good enough and you know, a quarter of children by the age of seven have tried dieting. So we start very early as girls, and this progresses all the way into womanhood, that we're just not quite good enough and there's something wrong with our looks. And I wanted to shift the dialogue away from beauty being a competitive sport to something that actually we support each other with. And so along with saying that looking in the mirror and feeling that you're beautiful is one of the most revolutionary things you can do. We often think about activism as, you know, climate change or addressing poverty or dealing with injustice, all of which are very, very important. But actually one of the most activist things you can do for the whole of womanhood is just to tell another woman that she looks great and really believe it and to support her and to take her out of that anxiety. Because if we can change that sense of oppression of women of not quite being good enough of the way it affects our mental health the way it tips into our physical health the way that we portray ourselves in society and the confidence with which we hold ourselves that's massive in my view that's something that can radically change not just your life but the life of all other women too I I thought it was really interesting what you said there about the women that we put on a pedestal and how they don't even look like how they look Instagram culture really worries me It's like, do you remember in the early 2000s, people on The X Factor would go on it and they'd they'd have like developed this style of singing that sounded like autotune because they were so used to hearing it. That's what they thought voices sounded like. And I feel like young girls now do their makeup in a way that makes them look like they have had surgery on their face because that's what they think faces look like. So one of the things that social media has done, because we can connect with people outside our immediate physical peer group, is to start to create a singular idea of what the perfect beauty is. And face tuning apps and other similar filters also perpetuate that idea because they adjust according to certain algorithms. And so everybody wants to look the same, which is quite boring, actually, and doesn't really fulfill the basic need around beauty, which is our bodies and our faces are there to express who we are and for us to find a way to interact with the world on our own terms. And part of the problem is what I call visual diet. So the imagery we are consuming shapes our brains and literally restructures it so that the things we start to see as beautiful are things we want to repeat or we gravitate to and anything that seems different we find jarring 
And so if we simply change our visual diet, which can feel a little bit unnerving or unstable to start with, we start to recalibrate our brains and our eyes about what we consider beautiful and what is an image that we feel that we see as normal around us. So the first stage that I talk about in the book is trying to deconstruct how images are created and understand that the image we see, even if it is in quotation marks, an authentic influencer, isn't necessarily what they might look like in day to day life, because there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Mm. And even if it is what they look like in day to day life and they don't have a filter, it's only one millisecond snapshot of all the things that are happening in their lives, which we never see. And the challenge there is we're comparing that millisecond snapshot of their life with the whole of our lives and all the ups and downs that we have and the inner monologue that we have about how we look without knowing what's happening inside that person's life. And even on top of that, if you think about how a camera works, a camera itself is a distortion of what you see in life, which is why when you take a photo of yourself, it never really looks like what you think you look like or what you might look like in the mirror because cameras just operate in that way. It's not that it's a good or a bad thing. It's just... Even you don't look like you in your pictures. So why do we expect other people to look like them in their pictures, particularly when we know it's only a particular snapshot? So changing this visual diet is really important in the way that we approach the world. And one of the things I really found myself thinking about as I was writing the book was this idea of recalibrating our eyes. And I'm human just as everybody else. And I have been brought up with certain ideas of what beauty is. And I would find myself looking at somebody and catch myself going, oh, God, why has she done her hair like that? Or why is she wearing that dress? And I've really tried to make an effort to step back and say, that's how she wants to look. Or this is just a different kind of hair. And trying to adjust the way that I see things around me. And it's not easy. I mean, this is me being really honest about my own perceptions of the world. But I found it actually really liberating and a real sense of joy to be able to look at somebody else's choices and say she feels good like that that's how she wants to look let me find a way to celebrate that and support that and maybe maybe she's right and maybe my own ideas of beauty are are something that needs to be adjusted and I always go back to this saying that my my Persian heritage friends have shared with me when I compliment them on something, they will say this Persian phrase, which I talk about in the book, which is it's because your eyes are nice. And so beauty isn't an objective thing that's inherent in the person. Beauty is actually, as we might say in English, in the eyes of the beholder. It's because the way you see something is beautiful. And that's a reflection of you rather than the, the object that you're looking at. And, and in this case, sadly, women do become objects. And I think to reinvest the fact that they chose that, that they, they were experimenting, that they're on a journey, puts the humanity back in that woman. That's a very nice expression. There is a real, real kind of internalised misogyny, I think, in women, which is sort of where that kind of judgment, I think, on other people's appearance comes from. It's because we are so conditioned to feel it about ourselves and other women, I think, by society. But what I wanted to ask you about, you work in advertising, you're kind of like a big wig in advertising. And I guess the situation has improved in the last sort of decade. But I have often thought, 
I don't know, say, for example, I remember thinking this about this specific advert, a Mac advert for a lipstick, which Miley Cyrus was in. And she's sort of like wearing basically nothing legs akimbo. And I was just like, you want me to buy that lipstick. So I don't understand why the imagery in that advert is basically like designed for a man. You know, like advertising has traditionally been very, very like male gaze heavy so i wondered what you thought the role of advertising is in inspiring i guess self-confidence in women advertising is part of the wider element of cultural storytelling so it shapes our ideas about things and having come to the advertising industry as an outsider not having worked in it before i'm always energized and surprised by how people in the industry underestimate the power to shape culture through the stories that advertising tells. And advertising is a a storytelling industry. Mm. And it walks this fine line between reflecting culture and leading culture. And so all advertising campaigns, if they're to be effective, are predicated on a human insight. What is happening to people in society and therefore what need can the product or brand that you are selling tap into and feel like it resonates with the audience? And one of the things that is true of advertising as much as any other industry because advertising is just a manifestation of our sociocultural ideas gosh this sounds a bit like a phd thesis but (laughs) essentially the ideas that come up in any industry are a reflection of what people think about society at that time and therefore if we see ideas about women and beauty ideals and sexism and the role of women manifesting in advertising then that is only to be expected because That's just another part of society. The good news is that there is change happening. So we see in the beauty sector in particular, from the research we've done, but across all other sectors too, that there is a move towards being more inclusive, being more representative to thinking about how we represent ideas. And of course, the most famous of this is the Dove Real Beauty campaign. Mm. And, and trying to find ways to talk about beauty that are more reflective of women's own experiences and, and beliefs. And part of that change is also having more women in the room, more women, more female creatives, more female planners, which are the people who kind of think about the idea, and having women from a broader range of backgrounds. So we do see that that shift is coming. There is still quite a long way to go. But it needs to be something that happens across all the different elements of society so that, you know, beauty becomes something that is one part of being a woman. And and what I advocate for in Beautiful and work I do is that it is perfectly reasonable and right for us to think about beauty as part of who we are. If we consider beauty in this wider definition, which is how you look and how you wish to present yourself and therefore how you are received by society rather than having a very definitive, non-negotiable beauty ideal that is impossible for any woman to reach because that state of impossibleness is designed to keep women on the back foot. That was a very good answer. And given what we are up against, I think, as women feels like such a huge, huge mountain to climb, like it's such a massive task to dismantle the kind of systemic 
forces at work against us here. So I wondered if you had any thoughts on what we can do, particularly as parents or maybe, you know, older sisters or aunties or or role models to younger women, what we can do to help them feel beautiful in, in whatever way. At the risk of sounding like a shameless promoter, you could buy my book and read it. <laughs> <laughs> I did put, uh, to be fair, I did put six years of thought yeah. and writing into crafting it. But it, it's the same principles that we can apply. So the first thing is to look at how beauty changes in history and across culture. It's to think about how our bodies and our faces and our skin and our hair and all the parts of us are truly amazing and what we can do with them. For me, one of the inspiring comments from one of the women I feature is Serena Williams, who I've written a separate book about. And one pivotal quote she says is about how her body is her weapon and her machine. That really changed the way I think about my body and its place in society. But mostly just finding ways to decide for yourself what you want to be and how you look as part of that. And one of the things I found really inspiring now that the book has been out is mothers who have written to me to say that they have been reading this book together with their daughters as a way of having conversations about things that it's quite hard to talk to girls about because it's such a sensitive subject. It's so intrinsically tied to our self-worth and it can be really difficult for us to talk about our fears and our worries and the fact that we don't feel beautiful given that so much of a woman's value is tied to how she looks and it seems so existential. But finally, I think it's about talking to girls that you as an adult are also on your journey, that we haven't quite figured it out either. And that's very reassuring, I think, to girls, because knowing that you don't have to have the answers, that you are in a state of flux, that the importance of beauty waxes and wanes during your life. And sometimes there are other things that are more important and sometimes it's the most important thing in your life. And that's also okay. That honesty, I think, is very reassuring for girls to know that they are not alone in this struggle and that it's perfectly reasonable to think about it. But actually there are lots of other things in the world that they shouldn't be held back from because they're thinking about how they look, that they can have a worry or a conversation or an up and down about how they look as long as they are still going out and doing other things. And I think one of the most shocking statistics that I came across was something like around 50% of teenage girls won't go out and do an activity because they are worried about how they look. And that for me is really heartbreaking because if that beauty ideal is stopping women from being in the public space mm. and stopping women from achieving their goals or trying things out or just being them in public, then we need to find a way to reassure them that you need to go out and live your life and do what you need to do. So the book Be Beautiful is published now by Welbeck. The illustrations are by Shante Timothy and the pictures are gorgeous big recommend where can we follow you on social media if we want to see what you're up to 
You can find me on Twitter as Lovin Headscarf, on Instagram, Lovin A Headscarf. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. And shamefully or shamelessly, you can just put my name into Google and it will come up and you can choose your preferred poison social media of choice. Only good healthy images on my social media feeds, by the way. Good to know. Okay. <laughs> Shalina, thank you so much for joining me. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to Racing or Dated. Mickey, which fucked up version of Mary Poppins did you make us watch this week? <laughs> oh, I think we can stop there. That's a, a brilliant description. <laughs> this week, we watched The Witches of Eastwick, George Miller and Michael Christopher's 1987 adaptation of John Updike's 1984 novel of the same name. It features a host of big hitters, including Cher, Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer as our three Hubble Bubblers, Jack Nicholson as the diabolical Daryl Van Horn and John Williams on score duty, which backed him an Oscar nomination, don't you know? It also features some big departures from the original novel, adopting a much lighter-hearted tone than Updike by ditching a storyline where Daryl marries someone else and the witches kill her with magic cancer, causing D-Dog to flee town with his gay lover. It also, also features an ongoing conundrum, Feminist Manifesto, or Male Gaze Misogyny. Hmm. It is a zippy two hours, and while Updike fans weren't necessarily on board with Miller's more cartoonish take on the tale, the word flashy comes up a lot mm. in reviews from the time. Critics were mostly positive. Our old pal Roger Ebert wasn't keen on what he thought was an overcooked climax, but said, for the most, this movie plays like a plausible story about implausible people. It bagged a BAFTA for its special effects. No, really. <laughs> <laughs> and also it did really well at the Saturns, picking up gongs for Nicholson, Sarandon, Veronica Cartwright, who plays Felicia, Michael Christopher's screenplay, Williams's music and best special effects. No, really. <laughs> I, I didn't have a mouthful of pop at that one. So I could proper laugh. Jesus. Had either of you seen it before? Nope, never. Yes. Yes, I had seen it before. And I said to you last week, the only thing I remembered from it was the cherries. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, when I sat down to watch it this time, as I started watching it, it actually I could remember specifically where I, whose house I was in when I saw it, and I remembered all sorts of things about it. And I remember, for me, the most clear thing was that, I mean, bear in mind I would have been too young to be watching mm-hmm. it. I would have been, I don't know, 13 or something. You know, still around the age where you start to be aware of, you know, attractive men and things. And I remember, you know, these three women, they sit around and they talk about this creature that they want to manifest or essentially they do manifest. And he's going to have all of these great qualities and it's going to be like this dishy hunk type thing. And I remember, just remember clearly the crushing disappointment of 13 year old me when that person turned out to be Jack. Nicholson. I mean, I can't say I've been particularly discriminating with my affections in my life, but I have never gone near a man with a tiny, tiny ponytail at the back of his hair. Oh my God, his hair is just sickening. (laughs) It's not right, is it? I will say, though, that I do remember, because obviously he was... I don't know. Was he in his prime at that era? He was no, in a lot of films around that. No, the 70s he was in his prime. But he was in a lot of films around that time. And I remember quite a lot of people's mums fancied him. 
Slim Pickens in the 80s, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd seen it before, started watching it and was like, I have not seen this before. And actually thinking about how old I was when it came out, probably a good job because it is very sexual. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay, this is dirty. Okay, a little bit of plot. Welcome to the sleepy New England town of Eastwick. Cher is Alexandra, an artist and mother to a teenage daughter. Michelle Pfeiffer is Suki, an abandoned single mum of six and newspaper columnist. And Susan Sarandon is Jane, a childless classical music teacher at a junior school. Their husbands are either dead or spaff rats, and all of them are wearily accustomed to taking the usual shit from men. Early on, Jane's married boss puts his hand on her arse in front of a room full of kids. But, you know, the whole town knows he's a wrongun, and Alex later refers to him as a Nazi. Yeah, this was made in 1987, not yesterday. I know, (laughs) plus a change. (laughs) Anyway, this Bellen's given a speech about failing family values, and all three of our witches, although it is worth noting that word is never used in the film, are thinking they'd love him to shut the fuck up. Cue some serious weather that causes just that. Coinkydink or supernatural. Ooh. (laughs) Good noise. Alex, Jane and Suki are actually doing all right in life. But do you know what they really need? A A man. man. (laughs) Exactly. And so, hammered on martinis, they each describe what they're looking for and sort of accidentally summon one. But seriously, what idiot wishes for a man under a curse? Fuck's sake, Jane. Hello, Daryl Van Horn. Which cues this very quick question just for Jen. Jen, how many mm. Jack Nicholsons are in this film? I think just the one, but he does look a bit different at the end where they make him into clay or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Spoiler yeah. alert, sorry. What, in that award-winning special effect? <laughs> yeah. Laughter winning. So yeah. are you going for one or two? I'm just the one. Wrong. All of the Jack Nicholsons. He is a pig's whisker away from being ham. And I think he's up to at least 10 on the Jack Nicholson scale. Although we all know it does go to 11. 11,000. He's up to Christian Slater on, <laughs> yeah. the, on the Jack Nicholson scale. Totally. 1980s Nicholson as a horny little devil, though, is actually a pretty inspired bit of casting. As much as I love the Murray Kane, Bill Murray, who was originally up for the role, I'm glad he didn't get it. Yeah. Who needs nuance when you've got those eyebrows? Anyway, Daryl set his mischievous, nefarious and libidinous sights on Alex, Jane and Suki and fast gets to work with Alex. Now, we don't usually quote from films much in this little intro, but I've got to read this thundering speech from Cher. Or maybe Hannah Dunleavy, I'm not sure. (laughs) 13-year-old Hannah. I am positive that you are the most unattractive man I have ever met in my entire life, she tells him. In the short time we've been together, you have demonstrated every loathsome characteristic of the male personality and even discovered a few new ones. You are physically repulsive, intellectually Mm -hmm. retarded, you're morally reprehensible, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humour and you smell. (laughs) That's my favourite bit. (laughs) You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. Then obviously she fucks him. Yeah. We've all been there. I will say there is nothing more attractive than a man that says, obviously not Jack Nicholson, but a man that says, I don't want to woo you, I just want to fuck you. (laughs) To be honest, and I'm not being sarcastic. So Jane and Suki fall for him equally rapidly. And who wouldn't? Clearly Hannah's in now. (laughs) Guys, guys, come on. (laughs) Oh, no. No. No, never the ponytail. Never the ponytail. Ponytail aside, I mean, if we can, and it is a struggle, Daryl is a smooth operator. Is he? 
wooing them with feminism, garish kimonos, tanned man boobs and a ballroom full of pink balloons. That, and this is the truly magical bit of the plot, somehow don't play havoc with our heroine's massive hair. <laughs> They'd all be stuck to them, all exactly. those balloons. <laughs> it's the magic of cinema, Hannah. Anyway, soon they're all living together in Daryl's massive shag pad and giving town goody two-shoes Felicia the conniptions. Oh, wait a minute. Is Felicia possessed? She is not having a nice time, that's for sure. And husband Clyde is feeling the strain. Daryl is, to put it mildly, not a fan of Felicia badmouthing him and his harem. And with some collective cherry-based magic, he causes her death by murdering husband. Um, sure. Let's just skip over that. Unwittingly with this move, Daryl also causes the death of his fuck mansion as Alex, Jane and Suki shut him out. This makes him seriously narky. And so the women, finally convinced they are powers of their own and hands went together and that they don't need no man, decide to cause him torment via a voodoo doll and then get rid of him for good. Go the sisterhood, right? Sort of. Because as we found out by this point, all three of them are up the duff. And look, I know America's still packed with anti-choices, but you think an abortion when you're carrying the actual devil spawn <laughs> would yep. be a no-brainer. Apparently or not. Or just you've got five kids already. <laughs> Six. Six. <laughs> Cut to 18 months later and three baby boys are hooning around in wheelie walkers and turns out our witches are kind of missing baby daddy Daryl. <sighs> it's a roller coaster. I am going to start with the big question. And that is, is the witches of Eastwick reinforcing the patriarchal conceptions of women as witches and or requiring a man for personal growth? Or is it a satire of those very notions? I don't think it's meant to be a satire. I think it was meant to be a satire because it's updike. But I think by trying to make it a more broad comedy, they have slipped into area A, as you were describing and it's in Felicia's plot that it really, mm. like, really jars because I remember her as being the baddie from watching it when I was mm. 13. And albeit I don't agree with her moralizing views, she's actually done nothing wrong. She does nothing wrong. She's just a bit small-minded and basically she's persecuted to the point of death by the devil and... It's played for laughs and I don't like it. So she is obviously the one, she's religious and, and whatever and blah, blah, blah. But she does also actually think he is Satan, which he and is. she's right. So, yeah, yeah. So, so Felicia's you know. character is straight out of Salem, except she's telling the truth and no one believes her. So it's like she's the crucible, but it's it's no one's believing her. They all think she's yeah. crying wolf or she's gone mad. And I actually think Veronica Cartwright is magnificent in this. She yeah. plays it so well. And her husband kills her. Like what's and and we're like yeah played for laughs. It's like we're supposed to. Uh, how am I supposed to feel about that? Am I supposed to feel like well she was a bit fucking annoying? No wonder he killed her. How is the viewer supposed to take that? It's uncomfortable, isn't it? And you are yeah. supposed, and it is played for sort of laughs like oh nagging wife, which you know we we mm. know that men who commit domestic homicide use that as a defence in court. In Updike's novel, he kills her. Clyde, her husband, kills her, and then he hangs himself. So they both get shunted out but still it's a really weird like oh domestic homicide lols yeah mm. agreed i do have another question about felicia yes though. please and that's why when she fell down the stairs and broke her leg why she needed someone to feed her in the hospital both her arms were still working because of the fat cells or whatever it was they tell him it's gonna make <laughs> her mad i don't know 
things will escape from her blood now she's got a broken leg and it might make her a bit paranoid. What? Yeah. But she is, going back to what you initially said, Hannah, she is played as the hysteric, which they don't do with the three main women, which is good, right? Because which mm. is hysteria. Why would you ever listen to a woman? As you know, we get to Jack Nicholson's speech at the end of how do we cure being afflicted with women? But yeah, she is the hysteric. So as much as they avoid it for three of them, they can't help themselves and it kind of undermines yeah. any female empowerment, maybe. One thing I yeah. noticed at the end as well is that by the end of it, so, like, obviously, to start off with, Jane, that's her name, isn't it? Susan Sarandon's character. Yeah. Yeah. Plain Jane, obviously, is what they've gone for there because she's, like, got glasses. So, obviously, you know. And one fuck and her hair was like, <laughs> whoa. Exactly. She turned into Lizzie Siddle after I one I think fuck. they fucked in the balloons. The point I wanted to make was about the hair because, like, suddenly she's like, woo, sexy lady. Uh, so that's all she needed. She just needed a good fucking by it's what we all need jen isn't it just at the end they've all got curly hair which is a trope it's a cinematic trope for mad is bitches. it jen is it jen <laughs> bitches be crazy the only curly haired person on this podcast says is it well jen's got is curly it? hair as well that's why i'm being quiet because i think i'll leave this to, to, to you two <laughs> no it's a, it's it's a uh, it's a cinematic trope it's what they did in the 80s particularly with bitches who be crazy like for example glenn close in um fatal attraction can't tame these women they're mad <laughs> There is actually a speech that Daryl gives to Jane, and I do think it pretty much nails why the patriarchy exists. So I'm going to do is another it little his, quote. when he pretends to be a feminist? This is the second time he's pretending to be a feminist. Right, but, okay, because yeah. I do want to talk about when he yeah. pretends to be a feminist, so yeah. And he says, men are such cocksuckers, aren't they? You don't have to answer that, it's true. They're scared. Their dicks get limp when confronted by a woman of obvious power, and what do they do about it? Call them witches, burn them, torture them, until every woman is afraid. Afraid of herself, afraid of men. And all for what? Fear of losing their hard-on. And I was like, I do think he's nailed patriarchy there. <laughs> I think he has, but I think if he had a Twitter account, he'd have a blue tick and he'd be working for BuzzFeed. (laughs) That whole sort of, you know, let me tell you. Oh, God, I understand. That whole, yeah, I'm on your side. I'm one of the good guys. He's as old as the hills and still happens now. Yes, it does. Yeah, I actually thought that part of it was the least dated part of the whole film. Particularly when at the end, his true colours shine through and he's like, women are a curse. And you're like, ah, now we get to it. And I think the other thing that means that this film maybe isn't feminist as much as, because Updike, it was a satire. Updike wrote a satire. And Hannah, you pointed out exactly why maybe it doesn't work in this. But also, it's Nicholson's film. They're great, but it's Nicholson's Mm. film. Yeah. So I have a question. Okay. If they remade this now, Mm. who do you think they'd manifest? Oh, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> it's the point of him that he's supposed to be a bit gross. Yeah, they do say, they specifically yeah. say handsome. And then one goes, but not that handsome. And I thought, oh, poor Jack. <laughs> they already like undermining him. <laughs> Who would they manifest? Oh, I don't know. I don't really have an idea either. But I just feel like now it would be someone who was more conventionally attractive. Yeah. Who would you manifest, Hannah? Were I in this film, I would have manifested Jeff Bridges, obviously. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. And what about now in a modern day version? Well, we're watching Four Lions next week, so I have to keep my K-Fan Novak love (laughs) under control. So, What about Liam Hemsworth? I, do you know what? That's exactly Chris Chris Hemsworth Hemsworth is who I was going to say. Thor, Thor guy, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Chris Hemsworth. Okay, well, we're all in agreement, and hopefully he'll be <laughs> arriving on the podcast next week. Oh, my God, there's a knock on my door. <laughs> Gary's going to be furious. Um, can we talk about the women? Because I think, I think the performances are brilliant across the board in this, actually. I think Cher's great and, like, so beautiful. Susan Sarandon's great. Interestingly, Susan Sarandon got out the role of Alex, and this is how the men who produced this decided that despite the empowerment themes of the film, they were still going to fuck women over. Cher said she'd only be in it if she could play Alex. And they went, oh, OK, we really want Cher. And didn't tell Susan Sarandon until the first day of filming. Wow. Seems, seems like well, a dick well, move. Had she not learned the wrong lines then? I think presumably. they get kind of a chat where they meet up on set at first right. to kind of discuss things. But yeah, and I think Michelle Pfeiffer's great in it as well. I was watching this and I thought, as soon as she as soon as she arrived on screen, I was like, Oh yeah, the thing I forget about Cher is because like now when I think about her I think about Do you leave a love of the love and all of that kind of bollocks and I sort of think of her more as like and like weird Twitter shit, a bit of a figure of mirth. And um and I was like, Oh fucking hell, she was she was really good. She was a really good actor. And I'm sure she still is, she just hasn't been in anything for a while. But like she's fucking brilliant in mermaids. Moonstruck, amazing. Silkwood, she's absolutely cracking mm. in Silkwood. And she's, I think it's like the first thing she'd ever acted in. And she's up against Meryl Streep. Amazing. And she's still really fucking great in it. And the, the mask, do you remember Mask as well? She's great in that. Yeah. Um, and I think she's the strongest out of the three women. Both character-wise, yeah. Alex is the strongest sort of, she's the leader almost, isn't she? And yeah, yeah. Cher's just incredible. And she gets that incredible speech before she fucks him. Yeah. I have a question though. Like, who's looking after all those kids all the time? When they're all lounging about in the mansion at the end, I'm like, where are our six other kids? Where's the daughter gone? And then they yeah. are, they're in the background. You know, they're not really important, yeah. Hannah. Yeah. So they're there every now and again. Like, when she's in hospital, there's like a variety of children sort of sprawled in a variety of places. That's a weird line, isn't it? Where she's like, I have to warn you, I'm really fertile. And I'm like, did we not have contraception in the 80s? I get pregnant a lot, is what she says. I get pregnant a lot. I've written it down and I've written next to it. Did they not do contraception in the 80s? There we go. I actually have written that down. <laughs> and he yeah. looks at her and he tells her she's got really fertile eyes. And I'm, I'm like, that's why the contraception wasn't working. <laughs> in the wrong place. You're putting it in the wrong place. <laughs> I bet he did. The other bit that made me absolutely piss laughing is when Felicia's having a little fit in church. She's having some conniptions and she's just shouting... They're doing this. And then she just goes, dildos, anal sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was funny. And also, right, that's going to be my next question. It is billed as a dark fantasy comedy. Did you laugh? Not um, especially. No, not loads. No. I did some lolling. I thought it was very entertaining. I was expecting to be quite bored. And actually, I was really entertained by it. I think there's a nub of something really great in it. Well, of course, there is. It's Updike, mm. right? But this iteration of it is not it for me. It needed to be... We we say this a lot, actually. So sorry to repeat myself. It needed to be less dark or more funny. Mm. Mm. You could get away with that sort of light-hearted funny that it was. Like that really fucking lame tennis match. What's that doing? Oh, and it really went on, didn't it? Yeah, fucking they really... Yeah. Yeah, they What's that doing out? in a dark satire? It's just... It doesn't belong there. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And and I, when I was reading up about it, it did say that the book is considerably darker mm. than the film. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. It didn't really, it didn't really do it for me. It didn't entertain me that much. I was a bit bored, to be honest. But I think Hannah has hit the nail on the head there with what what the issue with it was. It wasn't. I was expecting it to be like a bit scary, and it mm. it's not at all. Let's just quickly touch on those award winning special effects, guys. <laughs> Wowzers! Yeah, I mentioned Mary Poppins at the top. I actually think Mary Poppins special effects when they're laughing and go up to the ceiling are better, albeit 25 years older. It's the crazy claymation Daryl at the end. And I was I was almost on board with that, with him just being through the window. But then when he turns into that weird little little baby thing, I don't know what's yeah. going on. Still with Jack Nicholson's face yes, on it. terrifying. But so unlike Jack Nicholson that you wonder why they bothered. Mm, mm. Only that someone took a lot of time and they went, well, I've done it now. Yeah, yeah. may as well use this. <laughs> Yeah. He looks a bit like the the bit at the end where he's the weird clay thing reminded me of something else where there's like a snaky thing in something else. And Beetlejuice. Yes, I was thinking, was it Beetlejuice? Was that what it reminded me of? Yes. Right, one last question then. You know what it is? Rated or dated? It's a big fat dated for me, I'm afraid. Yeah, despite there being some things in there that I think have aged quite well, I think other things are pretty dated. I had an all right time, you know, so I'm going to say rated. Well, I mean, it's good that the three of us didn't agree, because like I say, if we had agreed, Chris Hemsworth, who's now in my kitchen making me a (laughs) cup of tea, he'd have disappeared. We did agree. We all agreed. We didn't all agree. We did. I said rated. Oh, sorry. I thought you meant about Chris Hemsworth. Sorry. Oh, right. (laughs) I was like, I'm waiting for him. Where is he? Come on. I wish Jen hadn't whispered a man with a curse just before. <laughs> Bad news is, Jen, you're getting another Hemsworth. <laughs> Who is it next week? It's me. What are we watching? Next week, we're, we're staying in 1987 and we're going to watch The Untouchables. Ooh. Standard issue. For all women.